So um, we've been talking again about breaking barriers last week. I just want to do a quick reset. I won't go long, but last week we focused not just on Saul, who hated Jesus, but was stunned and didn't believe in him. But he, when he met him, it was, it, he says it changed everything. But we learned about Saul and a man named Ananias. And we talked about how Ananias had reluctantly responded to a vision that he had been given, instructing him to go to the house of a man named Judas. Judas lived in Damascus. He lived on a street called Straight. Some of us, uh, the, the Romans called it the Via Recta in the Latin. It was the primary road that cut through the city. Uh, I'm just going to give everybody a map. I know sometimes people go, oh, I don't need like map. Well, you know what? <laughs> it's really good to know where we're talking about that what we're reading and exploring actually took place in real space, time, and history. And that this place right now is in some ways, as I always say, it's almost like the center of the world. I mean, Jerusalem, located right off the Mediterranean Sea, you can see it. In the Middle East, you see where Jerusalem is and Damascus, Syria. Think about that. Remember we talked about this, this is the convergence of the three, great con three of the great continents of the world hit together at this spot, Africa, Asia, Europe come together in the Middle East. It's always been the center. Damascus in Syria, still in the news a lot today. Jerusalem certainly is. They're having a, a bit of a civil war up there in Syria right now. Damascus, one of the more beautiful cities of the ancient world. That particular road, um, the Via Recta, the street called Straight, Straight Street, look at, you can still kind of recognize it even today. You can see the architecture, why it was called that. This is what we're talking about. We know that Ananias was instructed by the Lord to, to pray for the, uh, the notorious young Pharisee, Saul of Tarsus, the now infamous persecutor who, who was known for his intense, violent hatred of the way of Jesus. And suffice to say that, that you know, uh, <laughs> when Ananias entered the house in the room, you know, Saul is sitting there blind, right? He, he has been injured. He can't see. Remember for three days, he had been like that. He couldn't see. He'd been injured by the light of Jesus. He'd been injured by the light of Jesus. And the light of Jesus will do this at times so that we may see as we should see. And Ananias, when he entered that room and sees Saul, um, we, we must assume that, that, you know, for three days, uh, Saul had considered uh, what we may assume in utter shock, the reality of what he had done. Um, you know, that, 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 that the implications of the event that transpired on the road to Damascus. I mean, his, his exchange with Jesus, relatively speaking, it had been brief. It wasn't, it wasn't, it was actually short. 
But those words, like, I am Jesus whom you are, per- who you are persecuting, they just echoed in his mind. That, that engagement with the, what he said that was the risen Jesus, not only did it change his world, it, the impact of it was devastating. Right? It literally crushed him. The realization that hit him, that he was now sitting with for three days in his blindness, they said, you want food? No, I don't want anything to eat. At least have something to drink. I don't want to drink anything either. I just need to be alone in his blindness. As he processed through the implications of what, what that meant for him, I mean, he had been not just wrong, he had been 180 degrees wrong. He had been like the opposite, completely dead wrong. Wrong in his assumptions, wrong in, 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 in who he thought Jesus was, blind to the reality of, of the fact that he was the Messiah. You know, everything about, but even more than that, because it, not only did it mean that he was wrong about Jesus, it meant that everything that he had been doing, hurting people, persecuting people, imprisoning people, in his self-righteous zeal, he, he had locked up in what he now understood to be innocent men and women whose only, their only sin had been in his eyes because they, they claimed to follow this Jesus, who he believed was a false messiah. Right? They were corrupting the religion of his people, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? This was, they needed to be dealt with, and he was the man to do it. But then he had to, now he had to come to grips with what he had done. As he's sitting there, I imagine him thinking about not only who, who Jesus is, but then, oh my, what have I done? I mean, he had, he had beat people. He had beaten fathers in front of their children. He had traumatized those children. He had, he had done things that later on he, will say, he, he would say, I have blood on my hands. Like he, he had to deal with that. And it was, it was during that period when he wouldn't eat and he wouldn't drink that he got an impression, we're told. Like the, 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 he got um, a vision and a voice. And that voice was something he would come to recognize because it would come back to him as the years went by. He would begin to recognize the voice as the voice of the Lord. A voice that told him while he was sitting there in his blindness on that third day that told him, that voice in this vision told him that he was going to see a man, that a man named Ananias. And I think in his eye, I think he, even though he was blind, I think in his mind he saw the face of Ananias. A man named Ananias, he saw a vision of a man named Ananias coming to him and laying his hands on him and praying for him. I mean, it's kind of incredible um, if you think about it. Physically, he cannot see, but in his mind, he saw. Physically, he couldn't see anything, but in his mind, he saw. And although he, had, he could not see, he had already seen Ananias. So on that third day, Ananias doing what he now believed he was supposed to do, although he had initially resisted, made his way down the street that we just kind of looked at. He made his way down that street and found the house of Judas of, of Damascus, inquired, and it was affirmed that there was a man named Saul there. He had said he had come to see him, been sent to see him. Saul said, obviously, let him in. I imagine Ananias walking through the hall. He himself, Intense adrenaline, doing what he believed he had to do but didn't want to do. I've been told to pray for this man who has done so much harm. I don't even know if I can believe that he's changed. 
comes to the door, knocks on the door, opens it up, says these words, maybe words that he could not have envisioned himself saying just a day ago, two days ago, three days ago, certainly not four. Brother Saul. Brother Saul. And then Saul in his blindness. Ananias. I know, I know you. You have been sent to me. Yes, by God. To pray over me. Yes, you come in. And that's how it begins. That's how it begins. Ananias, is that you? Are you here to pray for me? Aren't you? God has sent you. I know it. Now we pick up. You've got it now in the handout. That's where we are. You follow along your Bible, Bible app, but here we go. Verse 17. Here, let's move into this. So Ananias departed, entered the house, laying his hands on him. He said, there it is, Brother Saul. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales, it like fell from his eyes. He regained his sight and then he, he rose and he was, he was baptized. I mean, the, by the way, the first thing he saw after, the first thing he saw after he was prayed for and he could, and he could see, the first thing he saw was a man named Ananias looking at him in the same amazement that he was looking at him. And it was one of those moments that neither man would ever forget as incredible as it was as he pulled his hands away and they looked at each other for the first time. The first time he saw as the new man that he now was, he looked in the face of a man named Ananias who had just finished praying on him, over him. And he knew, forever knew, that he was connected to something far more different than just himself. He was connected to a people God, I mentioned this last week, God could have healed him. God could have said, blindness, after three days, it's gone. But he sent a man to connect him in the community so that he would always know it's not about you on your own. It's about you connected to others. The way of Jesus is a way of humility. Don't ever forget it. From the day of your conception, you must remember it. And he never did forget it. Not only that, we were told that he was, and something must have come up because Baptism must have come up in the conversation because Paul says, basically, I will, I'm willing to be baptized. Ananias must have said, I think you need to be baptized. Okay, God sent me here to tell you this. And I think you should be baptized into his name. To be baptized into someone's name was to say, this is who I am. This is my true, listen, this is my truest identity. We live in a world and a culture that wants everybody to identify themselves with something but to take the name of Jesus on you is to say, this is my truest identity. Greater than any other category that people would put me in or I myself would put myself in, I am firstly covered in the name of Jesus. We have a baptism service next week. People making that public confession of their belief in Jesus, that he died and rose again for them. If you've never been baptized and you believe, do it. We have a, we have a class called The Journey. You can jump into that. And that's a way of getting yourself to make a statement about the name that is over your life, and it changes everything. There's a time to be baptized, a time for strengthening and fellowship. Look at verse 19. It says, taking food, he was strengthened. Look at that. And for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Now think about this. Incredibly, right? 
the very people that he had just 72 hours uh, despised. The people he had come to Damascus to track down and imprison were now incredibly his hosts. It was stunning. It was, it was unbelievable. It was an inconceivable turn of events, something that only God could have orchestrated. There's no other way to explain it. A vast majority, by the way, of Bible historians and what we call um, Pauline scholars, that is people who dedicate themselves to just the study of the historical Paul and, and reconciling the biblical record with the historical Paul, most are convinced that you, you, what you see between verses 19 and 20, you, you may not see it here, but essentially what is wedged in here is a three-year gap. A gap that most people see either happening right there or at the end of uh, verse uh, you know, 20. But most people would see it between 19 and 20. And we know this for a reason, that what, see, stay with me, I know it's a detail. Some of us go, it doesn't really matter. It, it's actually, it's fascinating. It seems that after Paul's initial, you know, joining into the community of followers of Jesus, that he felt led to relocate for a three-year period into the Arabian wilderness. That he chooses to leave, essentially. Now, he may have come back and forth to Damascus, but for the most part, he lives isolated in the wilderness. And we know this. We know it because when we were, we were uh, reading what he teaches and what he talked about, he talked about how he, he essentially goes into Arabia and he, find, and he embeds himself into uh, the message of Christ and deeply begins to process through all of his training, all of his understanding of the scriptures. He begins to reformulate an understanding of who Jesus was. We know this because he would later write as a much older man, these words, and I put, I put it in, your, in the handout there. It's that midsection, Galatians 1. Check it out. This is how we know what happened. It says, for I would ha have you know, brothers, he's writing the church at Galatia, again, many years later, that the gospel that, I, that was preached by me is not man's gospel. No, 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 no. I did not receive it from any man. Nobody taught this to me. Like, I, no, I, I, nor, nor, I, look, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard, look, you have heard of my former life in Judaism. You know, you know how I persecuted uh, the church of God I, violently. I, I tried to destroy it. That's the truth. And I actually was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. I, I, so, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart, even before I was born, I've come to see that now, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult anyone. In fact, no, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. No, but what I did was, and here it is, I went away into Arabia. Look at that. And I returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. That's another name for Peter. And remained with him 15 days. So what it seems is this, that Saul, essentially, after his initial conversion and his, his identification with Jesus, he engages for a brief amount of time the community of believers in Damascus, but he leaves. He feels called um, to, to be essentially alone, to live a life of isolation for a period of time. 
And it is there where it seems that he not only grasped who Jesus was as the resurrected Messiah, the Savior of the world, God's answer to the human dilemma, doing for us what we could never do for ourselves, bridging the gap between a righteous, holy God and a lost humanity. He pays the price himself. He gives himself his only begotten son. We call it the bridge of life for God so loved that he gave, right? That message, it gets deeply pushed into his, into his understanding. To listen, to the extent that he goes from being a law-bound Pharisee, uh, he had this mindset, in, he, but it, it shifts into this broad panorama of grace. It's there where it happens, where he, he spends his time thinking and praying and relearning, and he begins to see that it can never be contained in do's and don'ts. It's about a life of grace in Christ that is so much more than that. In fact, it becomes so deeply intertwined into who he is that his most dominant theme of his life is grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That becomes his word, grace. Think about it, the undeserved, unearned love of God at work in our lives through Christ Jesus. That's what he talks about all the time. It was there that he solidified and clarified his calling, sharpened his, and his focus. Right, yes, yes, he, he was a Jew, yes. But he was a, a Jew who had been trained in the way of his people at the deepest levels, but he was also a man extraordinarily at ease, a Roman citizen who understood Greek and spoke it fluently, that would be like the English of our day, who was at ease in the Gentile world, a unique figure capable of bringing the message of Christ. In fact, he would take the message of Jesus to the Gentiles. Remember, that's what the Lord had told Ananias to tell Saul. Remember that? I'll flash it back up just for us to remember because think about this. This is what he had been called to do. Let me put it up there, Acts 5. And 9, 15 and 16, I should say. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings. And look at that. And the children of Israel. And look at that bottom part. What? For I will show him how much, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. They, I remember I told you I was going to have us interact with this. Here's a question. Because that was Paul's, that was, that was his assignment. And he would commit himself to it tenaciously. But I have a, here's a question. The Lord, and it's up there, the Lord has assignments for us to carry out, especially for those of us who are jotting things down and thinking or taking a shot of that. For the Lord has assignments for us to carry out. Do we, do we know what they are? Have we thought about them? And I say seasonal assignments, because I think the tendency is to think, well, I'm young, I don't need to think about it. No, no, no. Young or old, we all have a seasonal assignment. Maybe even more important when, again, Lord permitting, some of our years may still be ahead of us, the majority of them. But how we live matters. How we honor God matters. What is the assignment that he's given us this season of our lives? What do I mean by that? What are we talking about? Like, the Lord has something he wants us to pursue at this stage in our life. There is where true success is to be found. Now, some of it has to do with character development, relearning, like he, he was relearning. For others of us, it has to do with positioning ourselves for a new thing that God's about to do in the coming years. 
but he can't even give us that yet because we couldn't contain what he wants to give us. There's been a few times in my life where I felt like the Lord was prompting and saying, pray for this, and I would pray for it. And then I felt like also it was like the Lord was, and again, I say this with humility, but this is what I believe. Saying, the Lord is saying, I can't give that to you now because you'd ruin it. You don't have the character base for it. You don't know how to negotiate your way through this. You're not ready. There are other things God wants us to, to learn about how to love people better. Listen to me. Listen to me. How to get past our wounds. Some of us see things through a lens of wounding, and it diminishes our effectiveness. Others of us have not learned how to really draw the strength from the Lord that he has for us. And this really is connected to something else. Later on, Paul would say, stay with me on this, in Philippians, he would say, listen, I've learned the secret of how to live with contentment. He would say this in Philippians 4, not that I am speaking of being in need. Look at that. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Look at that. I know how to be brought low, how to have things hit me that are hard, and I know how to abound, like to get blessed beyond what I deserve. In any and every circumstance that I find myself in life, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I, I Listen, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now that, that is a statement. That is the man he became. That is the will of the Lord for us. Like to be content is to, to listen, to learn how to be content in terms of being abound, when we're abounding and how to be content when we're being abased. What are we talking about? Like what does that mean? That I can, I can be a person who lives in a place where I have been getting blessed in some ways. Where You know what happens if sometimes people when, they're, when, they're, when we're blessed? We can, we can prosper and we no longer feel like we need God. Like when, sometimes what happens is when we're hurting and we're desperate, we'll seek the Lord more authentically because we feel like we have nowhere else to go. But then a lot of times what happens, and I've seen this, we get better because God's ways work. We get healed. We actually could prosper because the principle is like being a seed planted in the ground. The oddity is when something doesn't happen, when we honor the Lord, certain things happen. But I've noted that, it, when, that there's a danger in being blessed at times too because we can start to feel like I don't really need God as much as I used to. Our love grows cold. The Lord talked about the danger of that. And things don't mean as much. Other times, there's a, there's a danger in being abased, or what that means is when things are going badly for us, and we are frustrated or hurting. We, we feel like God's maybe letting us down, or someone we love is letting us down, whatever. We feel that it's hard. And in those places, we can also say, well, God, you don't really love me. It, it, or you, you know, you're not really for me. Now, we may not say it. We may not even, just, we may not even you know, just, we're not going to renounce him. But our body, everything about it, it's like we, we're affected. This, these things define us. And what, what Paul is saying is, these things do not define me. I've learned, to, I've learned how to live. I, I can be blessed. I'm going to keep loving God. And, I, and I'll be a vehicle of blessing. And I know how to suffer. And I can still love God. I've learned how to be content in everything. I'm a, I'm a, here's the principle. So that, that kind of contentment, listen to me, it doesn't come naturally. It's learned. 
What did he say? I have learned. He didn't get born coming off the road of Damascus. As soon as Ananias laid his hands on him and he could see, I was born, I know how to be content. No, he learned how to be content. He trained himself in the Lord to be content. He understood that there were good, that's a pro, here's what I'm saying. You know what, that's good for us? We can improve. We can grow. We can get better. Right behind that, I'm not talking about uh, a fatalistic, it's not a whatever, that kind of contentment is not a whatever fatalistic position, mentality. It's instead what it is, is a, listen to me, now think. It's, it's an, a trusting, adaptive positioning. It's not like whatever, whatever, I'm good with God. That's not it. That's not, that is like, no, there's no depth in that statement. That's not honest. It's not even authentic. Like, I'm fine, whatever, whatever. No, go, we don't go whatever. If it's not good, it's not good. But that doesn't mean we cannot learn how to be with Christ exceptionally adaptive. The way of Jesus, when we truly pursue it, you gain a power to be able to face any situation. And it may initially hit us hard. And we go, I can't, I'm, I'm, but it's so powerful because it's an adaptive thing. It's like it, you hit and you can learn how to reposition. It's about constant repositioning. I reposition myself in Christ. As negativity is coming on me, it's going to sit on me, define me. I reposition myself in the promise of God. Right? I'm, oh, this thing's coming back at me, coming back at me. I reposition myself in the promise of the Lord. It's tremendously adaptable. It's, it's exceptionally resilient. Exceptionally. Like you get hit it, it comes back. We come back. That's why David would say in the Psalms, you have made my feet like the feet of a deer. You, I can go through precarious, treacherous places where it'd be so easy to lose my balance and I would be finished. But because of you, I can, I can get my way through this. You have made my feet like the feet of a deer. Think about that promise. You can help me. You show me how to maneuver my way through things, hard things. This is, this is, amen. Okay, so going back to our, our man, I'm telling myself, remind myself, yeah, okay, here we go. Verse 20, go back to our handout. We're going to finish up around here, but stay with me on this. Immediately, so the Bible comes back. He's in Damascus, somewhere most likely around that three-year period. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying he's the Son of God. That had been the pattern of what he was doing. All who heard him over this time frame were amazed. They said, is not this the man? Who, who is this guy? He's the guy that used to be, isn't that the same God? That's Saul, who made havoc in the Jerusalem of those who called upon this name, and that's the same name he's now preaching? What has happened? And he, he, has he, wait, didn't he come here for the purpose of, of stopping the very thing he's now proclaiming? Wasn't he the one that was supposed to bring them and arrest them? But Saul, look at it says in verse 22, he increased all the more in strength, confounded the Jews, his peers, his fellow leaders, who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. <laughs> increased in strength. Some of us are committed to staying physically fit. But that's not the strength we're talking about. Many a man who, or a woman who is physically fit, spiritually sickly, 
Both are good, one is better. Pay attention to the inner man. Paul said, though my outer man will perish, yet my inward one is renewed day by day. It's a daily life with Christ, strengthening. He increased in strength. Some of you are increasing in strength. It's happening. You're getting stronger in the Lord. You're learning more, understanding more. You're applying more. Some of us have been taking that, that dailiness of our life with Christ. We're studying the Bible. We're learning. It's not just things about something. It's about what God is doing in our lives. Some of us are getting the rise and shine. We're engaging the message throughout the week. We're, we're connecting in the community. We're being open to talking about him. We're taking it seriously. We're actually growing. Our strength is, spiritually speaking, increasing for the blessing of others. It says that he confounded them. That is, he reasoned, his reasoned scriptural arguments were hard to overcome. You've got to understand the uniqueness of who he was. His prodigious intellect, because he was an intellectual. His prodigious intellect, combined with his extreme, or I would say extensive theological training, and then you combine that with his personal tenacity, it merged together with the anointing of the Holy Spirit to create a potency rarely if ever seen before or again in the kingdom of God. It, it, it's like a unique thing that God did there. I mean, he would become the point of the spear. He would become a wedge. He would become, if I can say it this way, a wrecking ball, a literal wrecking ball to prepare for a new building of the Lord, proclaiming that in Jesus Christ, the middle wall of, per, uh, the middle wall of partition that separated Jew and Gentile was now being re reformed because it had been taken away because of Jesus. That there was no longer the categories, but rather coming together as one in Christ. Powerful truth. It was a message that would bring, by the way, the Roman Empire ultimately to its knees, and it would change the world forever. He becomes the singular, most prominent, powerful me messenger of Christ our world has ever known. That's just a fact. But initially, nobody wanted to hear him. He was not received with open arms. It wasn't like they said, oh, there's Saul, the former Pharisee. We should listen to him. <laughs> Quite the opposite. His, his former associates and the, and, the, and the leaders of the Damascus synagogue and the community decided that actually quite the opposite, an extreme measure was necessary. He must be killed. And we're told this in verse 23, that when many, look at this, we only got three left there. When many days had passed, the, 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 Jews, the Jewish leaders in the Damascus synagogue plotted to kill him. Uh, <laughs> ironic it was, of course, Saul, who had planned on destroying the followers of Jesus, had come three years earlier to hunt and imprison them. Now he was being hunted. Plans were being made to have him assassinated. Look what it says. But their plot became known to Saul. They were actually watching the gates. Look at this. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. So there was actually a squad that had been set aside of assassins that were going to wait. And when the time was right, as he was leaving the city, they were going to assassinate Saul. That was the decision that was made. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him. Well, somebody said, do you know what? We've, we, they, they're they're going to kill you. And I don't know who it was, but somebody says, we have an idea. <laughs> Nothing as powerful as an idea whose time has come, <laughs> as they say. We have an idea. We don't think you should walk out the, we don't think you should walk out the city, out of the city. 
what we're going to do is we've got this big basket. <laughs> and we're going to put you in the basket. And we're going to tie some ropes to it. And then we're going to lower you down at night. And you get out of here. That was the plan. Now, again, I tried to imagine myself. I mean, I'm thinking, I'm here, Saul. He's going, really? That's your plan? Yeah, that's my plan. That's the plan. All right, well, okay, yeah, how, how big is the basket? It's big enough. Get in the basket. <laughs> I don't, just get in the basket, okay. And I try to imagine them putting the thing, and I'm, I'm, I'm just going, again, I'm reading it, I'm going, who could have, I, I see him in the basket, going, oh, be, be careful, you got be kids there, they're holding him, like, a, like, a, like a, a boat being lowered, a lifeboat off of a ship, right? Everybody hold the ropes. You keep it all steady. And I imagine him taking a little peek out of it. They put him in, they put the thing in on over his head. It's like, it's claustrophobic in here. <laughs> Opens it up, you can see below, be careful. But I, I it just can't help but think. <laughs> Three years earlier, I wondered if he sat, as he was sitting in this place, <laughs> crunched in this basket, lowered down, if his mind did not float back to three years earlier. <laughs> I came here as a conqueror, feared and respected. I was proud and certainly arrogant. And now I'm here in a basket. <laughs> I'm here in a basket being lowered down because they're trying to kill me. And how humbling that was. And how right it was. For when the basket hit the ground, poof, and he stepped out of it. I don't know how he did it. <laughs> Maybe he fell when he was stepping out of it. Oh, my feet tangled up there. Whatever. He was never more free than he was. Into the night. The one who had been blinded by the light was a different man. And he moved into his future free in Christ. Thing is this, and it's the last thing I want to put out there for all of us. Sometimes the biggest, and I'll say loved ones because that's what we are in Christ. Sometimes the biggest barrier he wants to break is our pride. I don't have pride. Yeah. Are there areas where we're being challenged to live in humility? And if I could add a word there, and vulnerability, appropriate vulnerability, not reckless vulnerability. There's a difference. Not everything should be shared. But some things should be. Because in the sharing comes the opportunity for healing. So I can't own something, how am I going to get better? And some things need to be prayed with for by people who can be trusted. Not because they're perfect, because we live in community together. And they've, they've demonstrated trustworthiness. Are there areas where we are being challenged to live in humility and trust him? Listen to me, with a future we didn't envision. Now, I can't see the future. Uh, I can't even tell what the day will bring. Who knows? By the end of this day, I could be a grandfather. By the end, who knows what could happen? <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's an inside thing. My oldest daughter is getting ready to have a baby. Um, that's why I said that. Uh, 
But what, are we, what, are we, what is the Lord wanting him to trust, us, trust him with? Out of the basket he came, and he made his way into a new beginning. Is there a basket that's very humbling that God's wanting us to get out of? That he's preparing for a new beginning for us, a new chapter, a new opening. All things work together for good to those that love God and are the call according to his purpose. Blessing, life, being sent your way in the name of Jesus. Let's stay focused. The best is yet ahead. Okay? All right, we're going to have a time of giving. We, we just do this. I know more and more of us are giving online. I get that, but for the traditionalists among us, it's okay. It's a good thing. Uh, then we have the final song. That song, now you know how we, one of our customs, it's, we don't always do it this way, but often this closing song is meant to be a benediction, a good word over, like a poem over what we share, prayer, over what we just shared. So interact with it. Let's finish well. Don't be in a hurry. Listen to the Lord as we listen to the closing song of prayer, okay? So let's pray together. The Lord, I, I just ask that as we take this moment to honor you, that you would allow your words to penetrate deeply into our heart. I don't know what it is you wanted to underline. I suspect that you had something to say to each of us uniquely, and that's good. We need to hear it. So I just ask that you bless this, these final minutes we're about to share, this final song, this final blessing, and help us to just listen for your voice as we share. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.